Hello, and welcome to your course on the art of public speaking. My name is John Hale. I'm an archaeologist at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, and it's going to be my pleasure to spend 12 lectures with you in talking about what I think is the most neglected skill in the entire repertoire of things that you can learn in the world today. Winston Churchill once said, there is nothing like oratory, and to paraphrase him, he said, it is a skill that can turn a commoner into a king. I believe that's true. I believe that public speaking is something that everyone should try to acquire. If you are a citizen in a democracy, you need to be able to speak in public. But also, if you're a member of a family, you will be attending weddings and be expected to give a toast to the bride and the groom, or a funeral and a eulogy for a dead loved one, or just uh, a congratulatory speech at someone's birthday. All of these call for public speaking skills. In our ordinary life, there are times when you want to address a book group about a book that you've read, or talk to a neighborhood association about something important to you. There are times when you need to stand up in a courtroom or for a planning commission and make a case. And there are other times when you are simply trying to share your own skills, your own background, to someone who might be able to give you a job. Certain professions call for public speaking. Lawyers, doctors, people in the military, clergy, all kinds of salespeople, business people who either need to sell themselves or a product or an idea. All of these are folks who are going to need to be effective public speakers, and that means just about everyone. This skill is often devalued. Lots of people think that public speaking is something that you shouldn't think about, that it's rhetoric or mere oratory. These are considered pejorative terms. Rhetoric is supposed to be fancy verbal flourishes that hide meaning rather than convey it. It's nothing of the sort. Rhetoric is as noble an art as exists on this planet. Rhetoric is the art of clothing in words, and in gestures and in presentation to a group, the ideas that you have in the most effective way possible. That's what rhetoric is, that's what oratory is all about, that's the skill we're going after in this course. The fact that you are here means that you are concerned about your skills as someone who can speak in public. It means that you have decided to take some steps, and that's the most important thing of all. We're going to have 12 guest lecturers in the course of our time together. I want to share this podium with the likes of Demosthenes of Athens, Queen Elizabeth I of England, Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, Abraham Lincoln, many others. They will each be featured in a speech or set of speeches that made a difference to the world and to them, but more important in my view, speeches which make a point. Speeches which help you understand more clearly, with a vivid example, something about public speaking. And at the same time, I, as the presiding professor who ties these 12 guests together, I'm going to try to be modeling what I think is good public speaking to you all the time. Now, what's, what is my qualification to even be up here in front of this camera? 
I'm a teacher. And that means that early on in my life, I decided it was my mission, in my case, to speak for the past, a past which cannot speak for itself. There are other missions, there are other people, but that's my mission. Early on, I got over stage fright in a way that we're going to be talking about in a little bit, and I found that I was able to stand up in front of a group and present an explanation of archaeology that I had done or that I had read about others carrying out, trying to explain ancient monuments, ancient cultures, vanished civilizations. This had become my world. I wanted other people to understand it as their world. I was lucky to go to a, an elementary school which helped me become an effective public speaker very early in my life, to the point where now I think I've probably given, I, I did add it up when I was preparing for these lectures, about 2,000 public speaking presentations. Most of them as lectures, as a teacher trying to explain, trying to inform. That's one of the goals of public speaking, to teach, uh, along with to persuade, to congratulate, to praise, to challenge, many others. But mine was mainly about teaching. This school that I went to, this public school from third grade on, I should give it credit, Green Valley Grade School, New Albany, Indiana, it had a tradition. Every class had to write, produce, and act a play, and every student had to have a speaking part. Well, the result was we all got over stage fright because everybody was in it together. We all had to be up there on the stage in the gymnasium, and I can remember the teachers in a row at the back of the gym shouting to us, louder, clearer, slower, I can't understand you. You're talking to the front row. You need to be talking to the back row. By the time I graduated from Green Valley Grade School in sixth grade, I, like the rest of my class, had become people who felt comfortable on a stage felt comfortable talking. I think it's a great sin that this kind of training isn't given in every school, but if you are signed up for this course, it may be a skill that was somehow neglected in your early years. I'd like to try to share some of the ideas on how to get to this point of calmness and certitude with you. And I hope that by hearing from my own experience, by sharing with you, perhaps more to the point, the experiences and the words of these giants among public speakers, these historical greats, and finally by extracting from their words lessons, three to six lessons in each of our lectures, you will end this course with a greater understanding of what makes good public speaking, with a greater appreciation of what an important part of your life public speaking can become, and finally with a feeling of much greater incentive to tackle the challenge of getting over your obstacles, getting over your fears, and starting to speak in public yourself. All of this is wrapped up in this world of rhetoric. You may also have heard of some special rhetorical terms that are used for forms of speech, modes of address. I'm less concerned with those. I'm more concerned with you, I'm more concerned with the kinds of situations you are likely to face as a public speaker. Now, the first thing we have to do is get over stage fright. 
There are other obstacles too. Our featured speaker today, Demosthenes of Athens, had a formidable array of obstacles between him as a young man who'd grown up way out of the world and out of public life, who determined to turn himself into a speaker, but the first thing he had to manage was fear. I want to read you an extract from a speech by Mark Twain that he composed in honor of his daughter, who was a contralto singer, and in the early 1900s she gave a recital and he gave a little speech after she finished singing. And he harked back to his own experience with what we call performance anxiety. Public speaking anxiety, PSA, is just a branch of performance anxiety, where the palms start to sweat, the breath seems short, the legs begin to shake, your mind goes blank. All of these things happen with performance anxiety. This is Mark Twain's expression and memory of his first speech. My heart goes out in sympathy to anyone who is making his first appearance before an audience of human beings. I recall the occasion of my first appearance. San Francisco knew me then only as a reporter, and I was to make my bow to San Francisco as a lecturer. I knew that nothing short of compulsion would get me to the theater. So I bound myself by a hard and fast contract so that I could not escape. I got to the theater 45 minutes before the hour set for the lecture. My knees were shaking so that I didn't know whether I could stand up. If there is an awful, horrible malady in the world, it is stage fright and seasickness. They are a pair. It was dark and lonely behind the scenes in that theater, and I peeked through the little peek holes that they have in theater curtains and looked into the big auditorium. That was dark and empty, too. By and by, it lighted up, and the audience began to arrive. At last, I began. I had the manuscript tucked under a United States flag in front of me where I could get at it in case of need. But I managed to get started without it. I walked up and down. I was young in those days and needed the exercise. And talked and talked. Well, after the first agonizing five minutes, my stage fright left me never to return. I know now that if I was going to be hanged, I could get up and make a good showing, and I intend to. But I shall never forget my feelings before the agony left me. Mark Twain was one of America's most popular public personalities. It's very hard to imagine that a Mark Twain would have ever suffered a moment's uncertainty, self-doubt, indecision when getting up in front of an audience. But we have his own word for it, that he did. That he felt the same terror and shaking that all the rest of us had done. I want you to notice the things that he did, the steps he took in order to pre prepare himself for that speech. First of all, he made a compact with himself. He faced the fear, he faced the difficulties, and he said, I shall go through with this, and I shall go to the theater 45 minutes early to be ready. Now, this going to the theater 45 minutes early, that is very important. As we shall see in a later lecture, you always want to go and get to know your space, 
You want to see where you will be presenting. You want to try out your voice, although he does not specifically mention that, to hear it in the space so you know what it will be like when you begin to speak out and yours is the only voice suddenly there filling that, that auditorium. I don't know what it was in his mind when he looked at those people. Clearly many of them he already knew. In fact, in a part of the speech that I didn't give you, he talks about how he had actually planted some friends in the audience with instructions to laugh at his jokes or support his points. I don't know that that helped him, but I do know that getting there early, getting to know the space, visualizing the space with him in it talking was a critical step toward becoming master of the situation. Then he tells us that he had his speech written out. This is an important thing to do early on in your career. You want to write down a speech and you want to have it with you. If you choke up, if you get scared, if you feel like you can't go on or can't remember it, do what he was planning to do. Fish under that little American flag. I think that's a charming touch that there was that bit of bunting there for him to hide it under and simply go back to your written speech. He was ready for the emergency. What was the result of all of this forethought, all this preparation, all of that time being in the theater and speaking, if he was speaking before his own talk, and having the script ready, the result was when he came to the moment, it took him just a short time to get over the wobbly knees, the catch in the throat, all the things that make you feel you can't finish this speech. And by the end of the speech, he was the Mark Twain that America then came to know as the most popular public lecturer in the country. It became a major part of his career. Mark Twain introduces us to the personal part of our course. I've divided these 12 lectures into three parts. The first part is about you, your experiences, your preparation, your character, your overcoming obstacles so that you become everything you can be as a public speaker. The second part is going to focus on the speech itself. We're going to be looking at examples of people who carefully crafted a message to the public and learn lessons from them about how to create that speech, the thing that Mark Twain had tucked under the American flag that's the right speech for the right occasion. And finally, we're going to get you out there on that platform in surrogate form beside Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, Mark Antony in Rome, proclaiming over Julius Caesar's body, and others so that you get a sense of what it's like to face the audience and above all to think about the audience. There's a silly thing that's said as a first piece of advice to many public speakers, stand there and imagine your audience with no clothes on or in the G-rated version in underwear. I think this is terrible advice. You want to come to respect your audience just as you respect yourself and as you respect your message. That's what this course is trying to do for you. Get to that sense of respect for all concerned, that sense of capability. Now, the genius of rhetoric that I would like to have lead us into this world of speech making is Demosthenes of Athens. I spent a lot of time in 5th century BC Athens. It's the world I love best. I've written books about it. I study its naval affairs. And there is one genius, Demosthenes, 
who at a time when Athens' fortunes were sinking, tried to revive his city's power through his own speeches. But nobody would have guessed from looking at him as a boy that that could have happened. Demosthenes was born to a rich family, but his father died when he was very small. He was brought up by the women folk in the family, which means he was brought up outside the public sphere. He did not go to the gymnasium with the other boys. He did not toughen himself up, get his lungs strong through running, get his body fit through wrestling, getting to know other boys and being part of society. He grew up alone with books. One of his books was the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, another Athenian and at that time a fairly recent publication. He had a copy that he read eight times. He memorized lots of it. And what he was memorizing in many cases were speeches. So Demosthenes' first step was to try to become a good speaker by opening up scrolls and reading somebody else's speech and committing it to memory. Because in Athens, if you were speaking in a law court or in the public assembly, you couldn't use Mark Twain's crutch of the little written out manuscript. You had to speak from memory. No one would respect you if you were reading from a scroll, as I've occasionally done now. The one time that he could read when he was up there was if he was reading somebody else's testimony or a piece of evidence in a law code or a treaty if he were talking a, in, a, in a speech about policy, national diplomacy and negotiations with other countries. And just as you've seen me, and I'm trying to model and demonstrate works for you, just as you've seen me picking out other people's words and reading them, he could sometimes do that. It was an effective break in the speech. It helped him focus. It helped the audience to focus. Otherwise, he would be on his own. Demosthenes soon learned that he had some serious problems to overcome. His voice was weak. His chest was weak. Physically, he was a weakling, scrawny, walked around stoop-shouldered with a frown all the time. He had a speech impediment. We don't know exactly what it was. It may have been a lisp of some kind. At any rate, people laughed at him when he spoke as a boy. And he knew he was going to have to get ever over that if he intended to have a career as a public speaker as a man. Now, all of this happened as he was growing up. He probably didn't realize that it was going to really matter to him to be a good public speaker until he turned 18, got a reckoning of his inheritance from his father, and discovered that his guardians had embezzled all of his money. The only way that he would be able to get his money back, the money his father had left him, was to go to court, and in Athenian courts, you had to speak for yourself. So he went down to the seashore where he could be completely alone and began a course of self-improvement to make him a man that people would listen to in a court of law. And he used a little prop, a little aid that he invented himself as a method for improving elocution. He used a pebble. To get over that speech impediment, he would put a pebble in his mouth and he would then speak, working to get his tongue and to get his palate and to get his lips around that pebble so that he could be understood even with that stone in his mouth.
he would take those speeches by Thucydides and others and gradually trained his own speaking apparatus, tongue, palate, lips, so that even with the pebble, he could still be clearly understood. In this way, Demosthenes overcame the first of his obstacles, the speech impediment. Second, he was aware of his weakness of breath. Near the seashore, there were hills. He began to run up those hills, declaiming speeches that he'd memorized until he got to the point that his wind was so good he could run and speak the speech and not sound out of breath. And finally, he went back down to the seashore and tried to be heard above the crashing of the surf on the shore, trying to outshout the waves themselves, so that when he got up in front of that jury of 501 people, or in front of the entire assembly of Athens, everybody would be able to hear him. There has never been such a concentrated attack on the art of rhetoric as young Demosthenes undertook while he was still a teenager. That's the reason he's a hero to me. That's one of the reasons that I picked him to be the first of our 12 guest lecturers to lead you into this world of public speaking and the practice and practice and more practice that it takes to become competent in this field. He went to the court and he won his case. Then his vision grew wider. He wanted to speak in public. He wanted to share the idealism that he had acquired from reading Thucydides' history about the glorious days of Athens in his own time of decadence and decay. So he began to prepare a speech to deliver himself to the assembly. It was about reforming the Navy. He got up. He wasn't known to have had a great deal of experience. And his speech was very technical. There was nothing about his own opinions or life or, or feelings in it. It could have been written by anybody. And it made no impression at all. And this, I think, is another lesson we need to take from Demosthenes. Don't expect to succeed the, the very first time. Don't expect that your first speech will have them with Mark Twain rolling in the aisles or with Demosthenes up there. He had hoped for a great show of approval from the Athenian assembly. Don't expect that. And don't beat up on yourself if you do fail the first time, if you fall short you are probably your own toughest critic. Please remember, your audience wants you to succeed. They will have picked out whatever was good in your speech for you, and you just need to go on. Learn from the mistakes. Learn from what seemed weak or ineffective. He learned, within a year of his first speech, he was back on the podium. He had found an antagonist of Athens, Philip of Macedon, a king, the father of Alexander the Great, who threatened Athenian freedom, and Demosthenes, this scrawny youngster, decided to point the finger at Philip, show the world how he was gradually trying to take over the liberty of Greece and make it all one big Macedonian realm. By this time, he had become a sea captain himself in charge of a warship. Now, this had a powerful effect on his credibility. He could speak from personal knowledge. I urge you to do that in every speech you make. If you're toasting a wedding couple, talk about your personal knowledge of them. If you're lecturing on a subject, talk about your own experiences with that subject. Please do not think that nobody wants to hear about you. 
In polite conversation, it's supposed to be a bad thing to talk about yourself. In public speaking, most of the time, it's essential. Let me give you a few of the samples of how Demosthenes used his new experience as a sea captain in crafting metaphors and images, painting pictures with words, something we will encounter with Chief Tecumseh of the Shawnee later on in our course, in order to grab the attention of his audience and help his own credibility. While the ship is in good condition, safe and undamaged, that is the time for the sailors and steersmen and the rest of the crew to take every precaution to safeguard it and protect it from being overturned by storms or sabotage. But once the ship has capsized, then it is too late for precautions. If we Athenians and the rest of the Greeks were overwhelmed by the lightning bolt that struck us, that is, Philip of Macedon and his armies, what action could we have taken? You might as well blame a ship's captain after his ship has been wrecked, even though he has taken every precaution and equipped his ship with everything that could help it pass safely through the sea. Yet the ship does run into a storm, and despite the captain's care, its rigging is damaged or destroyed. But I was not the captain of our ship of state, nor was I in command as general, nor could I rule fate. No, it was fate that ruled all. People remembered his words to their dying day. And that's another thing for you to consider as you plan your public speeches, be they short or long. Someone out there may find in what you say the words that crystallize a feeling an event, a moment, and remember them as the words of Demosthenes were remembered by his fellow countrymen. He had worked for that position. He had strived, he had struggled in order to become someone that people would admire, someone that people would remember. In closer times than the fifth century BC to our own, we find other testimony to great speakers, both in the real world of history and in fiction, who do the same kind of preparation that Demosthenes undertook. And I'd like to consider a couple of those. One is someone you know very well, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, as we all know, loved books. And every time he had a chance to buy one, he would go get that book and by the firelight of his little cabin there in my state of Indiana or later in Illinois, absorb what was in that book. But he had a favorite book. He had a book by a man named Scott that was called Lessons in Elocution. We're going to be hearing from this book as we go along. The important thing to know is it was both guides on how to present yourself and it was a book on presenting you with extracts from great speeches, some from Shakespeare's plays, some from history, or just short little after-dinner aphorisms and anecdotes that you could practice on. It was his constant companion. The sixth edition, printed in Concord, New Hampshire in 1820, was probably the one that he owned. He wore it out, and to the end of his days, even in his presidency, he loved to talk with people about the speeches of Shakespeare and what they could teach us about statesmanship or diplomacy or the efforts to be a leader. So Lincoln, like Demosthenes, grew up in obscurity and tried to remedy that with work, systematic work, at studying speeches and oratory. 
We find more testimony to this need to work at it in, of all places, the novels of Jane Austen. In Austen's novel, Mansfield Park, Jane Austen described a conversation between two brothers in a noble house, Tom and Edmund Bertram, about public speaking and how they were trained as boys by their father to be effective public speakers. They would memorize poems or speeches and deliver them there in the house while their father listened when they were home from their schools on holidays. This is part of an argument. The grown-up brothers are engaged in a fight because Tom, the elder, wants to put on a play at home with his sisters, acting very racy, somewhat sexually suggestive parts, and Edmund, who will one day be a clergyman, is very much opposed to this kind of private theatrical. Here is their conversation. This is Tom speaking first. Nobody is fonder of the exercise of talent in young people or promotes it more than my father. And for anything of the acting, spouting, reciting kind, I think he has always had a decided taste. I am sure he encouraged it in us as boys. How many a time have we mourned over the dead body of Julius Caesar and to bead or not to bead in this very room for his amusement. And I am sure my name was Norval every evening of my life through one Christmas holidays. Edmund disagrees. It was a very different thing. You must see the difference yourself. My father wished us as schoolboys to speak well, but he would never wish his grown-up daughters to be acting plays. So there we have a distinction based on gender lines. The boys of a great English house are expected to speak, whether as members of parliament, justices of the peace, clergymen like Edmund, or if there'd been a third son, a soldier going into the military, needing to address the troops as an officer. The girls are meant to be seen, but not heard in public. Today, we expect everyone to be able to speak for themselves, especially in a democracy. So let's recap the lessons we've learned today. And let's especially think of our hero, Demosthenes, the man who has led us into this world of public speaking and wants us to understand what will take us along the road in our first steps. Number one of his lessons, make up your mind that you can and will overcome fears and obstacles. Second, practice, practice, practice every aspect of public speaking. Third, use cross-training in acting, sports, and other fields to improve your skills. Fourth, work on memorization. Fifth, accept early failures and persist with your efforts. If you can take these initial steps, you will be following in the footsteps of Demosthenes himself a man who had more obstacles against him as far as pursuing a career in public speaking than any other major historic figure known to us, and who yet, through his persistence and his belief in himself, overcame them all.